Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our guest is the awesome Rebecca Evanhoe, co-author of Conversations with Things, and we're going to talk about conversational UX and mapping conversations. This episode is brought to you by Zeppelin. Publish finalized design with one click, provide developers the specs they really need, and share your design system all in an organized workspace that's easy for the entire team to use. From PMs, QA engineers to executives, Zeppelin gives you a place where everyone can collaborate to ship beautiful products together. Get started for free at zeppelin.io. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, thanks for having me. We're very excited to learn about this again. Congrats on your book launch. Tell us more about the book and yourself, your background story. Yeah, absolutely. So the book, which I co-authored with Diana Dybel, came out in April of 2021. And it's basically a how-to book for anyone who's interested in making conversational products. It has a focus on design. But I think it's useful for developers, product managers, really anyone who just wants to learn more about what makes designing conversational technology different from things like websites or apps. And I got my start in conversation design almost 10 years ago, and I started working at a healthcare startup with a writing background, but very quickly my skill set kind of grew to be this role that was developing at the time, this conversation design role. My co-author, Diana, has a similar story. She is a writer. She has a playwriting background, and she also started working for a different healthcare startup and got her start in conversation design in that field as well. What made you get together and write a book about this? Because one thing is practicing it in the field, and the other is uh, you know, spreading the uh, theory and the practice in, in form of a book. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I think Diana and I, since we're both writers... Writing is a way that we like communicate and think through things. And so I think we just kind of have that brain orientation. But Diana basically like brought it up one day. We had met through like a Slack channel and then we met in person at a conference and really got along. And one day she just said, hey, do you want to try to write a book? Like, let's see if we can can do something. And both of us have particular opinions that we weren't seeing reflected in the books that already existed or in a lot of the literature talks. So we definitely wanted to put our years of experience and our personal orientations out there. What do you feel are those most common misconceptions or gaps in the industry literature? I think a, a big one, and this is going to seem a little funny because like apps and websites and other products really are designed first a lot of the time, but conversational interfaces, things like chatbots or voice assistants, a lot of times are more led by technology. And so in my work with clients, when I'm consulting, when I was a conversation design consultant, I really would notice clients would be like all developers and they wouldn't have any designers present on the team at all. And as a result, what they were building did not feel remotely human and it didn't even use like the right conventions of human language. So I think that's a huge one, being tech-led instead of design-led. And then another big misconception or thing that industry is really struggling with is under 
scoping. <laughs> and a lot of people think like, oh, it's just a voice conversation. There's no screen. It's sort of quote unquote invisible. So it must be easy and fast to build. But actually for a product to be nuanced and to do the things it needs to do, often you're talking about like months or even years of development. Who do you feel? You mentioned developers building conversational interfaces and that leading to disaster to a certain extent. Who do you feel should be doing this? Is this the job of a UX designer? Is it like a subset of UX? Who should be doing this? A dedicated person or can a mere mortal try? <laughs> That's such a good question. I think that the most important thing is that it is someone's job and that person is on the team. So conversation design people have all different kinds of backgrounds. Like you said, some are people who have a kind of a general UX background. They have the right tools in their toolkit. They just need to adapt it to some of the differences for conversational interfaces. A lot of people become conversation designers through writing backgrounds. That's really common. Poets, playwrights, fiction writers, technical writers. And a lot of people come from psychology or human behavior backgrounds. There's lots of linguists. So basically like there's a bunch of different pathways into conversation design. You can really adapt a lot of different skill sets and kind of flesh out the parts that you're not familiar with. Like for example, if you're a writer, you can learn how your writing fits into like a UX skill set and build out the more like UX elements of what, you know, the skills and and processes that you need. This is actually not the first time we talk about conversational UX here. We had episode 68 in our archives with Jonathan Stark, which is more, you know, a high level about uh, technology, philosophical, etc. We also have a great episode on voice UX with Sina Kahin in uh, that was 173. So we're going to link to all of this in the show notes in case you want to you know, recap the fundamentals, but I would still love you to introduce the key terms of the industry for our listeners today. Pretend they have no idea about the field and uh, so that we can operate those terms in our conversation today. Yep, absolutely. So I'll kind of go through the order that we introduce things in our book. So the first thing we do in our book is explain what conversational interfaces are, And then we talk about how people talk to each other and kind of break down like what is really happening when um, two people are talking to each other. They're taking turns. They're looking to each other's cues for context and things like that. And then we show, you know, all that technology is trying to imitate and kind of how difficult of a task that is, just so people have a foundation of understanding the nuance they're trying to, to replicate in a technology experience. So conversation designers, there's sort of like four like pillars that we work with. One is we design personalities. So this is like, what's the personality of the voice assistant? What's the personality of the chatbot? And our book discusses how you can make that personality functional, like how you choose the right personality for the use case. We also deal with prompt writing. So prompts are anything that the chatbot or the voice assistant is going to say. So we're basically like writing their lines of dialogue. And there are tons of techniques for doing that, whether it's a chatbot, where it's text-based, or whether it's a voice interaction. We have a whole chapter dedicated to this term called intent. Intent 
in the conversation design world is sort of a bucket that stands in for something the user wants to accomplish. So if you are trying to check the weather with a voice assistant, for example, there are almost infinite ways, like little variations in how you could make that request. And so an intent is kind of like a stand-in for that action that the person's trying to accomplish. And then for each intent, there's a set of what's called training data or utterances. People use different terms for it, but these are basically like a set of some of those representative phrases that a user could say. And the training data trains the algorithm how to recognize. So those are the big terms, the big pieces that conversation designers need to know how to create and how to plan the interaction. And that kind of leads us to like, how do you put all those things together? And um, one of the big challenges in conversation design is documenting and communicating with the team (laughs) how all these complex pieces fit together. Before we continue to actually documenting and mapping uh, conversations, could you give us, this is going to be a really silly question for those who are in the industry, but for, for those who are not, since there is an endless uh, array of ways people can describe things, is there in natural language, well, first recognition and then processing? Do you all use specific libraries for this or are some of those uh, recognition patterns recreated for each project? That's a really good question. So in the early days with some of these groundbreaking products like Siri and Alexa, those teams had to build those libraries from scratch. And there's actually two things you're potentially building. If it's a voice interaction, you're building the automatic speech recognition system. So that's the, the part that takes your what you say, the sound waves when you, you know, use air through your vocal cords, you create a sound wave. So it's figuring out those taking sound waves and transcribing what you said. So this is sort of that speech to text concept, right? So teams have to build out those algorithms. That's usually done by speech scientists, data scientists, NLU, or speech recognition experts. So that's usually not a conversation designer. Now, the other part after it figures out what you've said, like, you know, from your sound waves, what words you said. Then there's the part that figures out like what you meant and how that maps to the intents in the system. So for that part of the process, potentially conversation designers would put together some of these sets of training data. And often you're working with a system that has algorithms built for you and your training data is helping customize an algorithm that already exists. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Now, I'm really glad we clarified that. (laughs) Let's talk about mapping conversations. And when you're brought in as a consultant, what is that first phase that you do? Probably research one before you get started with actually designing the thing. I love this question. Thank you for asking it. So generally, we try and figure out what the problem the client is trying to solve and if a conversational technology is the right solution for that. So for example, I've had lots of clients say, hey, nobody can navigate our website. We're getting too many calls on our customer support. You know, Our call center is getting too many calls. So we think we need a chatbot. When actually the, the better solution would be to improve the website, right? So there's definitely trying to figure out 
people don't, you know, if you're trying to build a voice interaction, people don't always want to speak about certain things out loud. For example, like certain health conditions or things like that. So making sure that voice or chat are a good fit to solve the problem is, is step one. And then like most UX folks are familiar with, from there we figure out through user research and through talking to the business about what their needs are, we figure out what are features, what are different requirements, what technologies are we using, what constraints do we have, and those sorts of things. And then from there, once we know kind of what we're building and what the conversational AI needs to be able to speak about, then we can start doing early designs and very early prototypes to sort of start getting some of that conversational feedback really early in the process. What does a prototype even look like technically? There are so many different interesting ways to prototype conversational stuff. So really early on, sometimes it's as simple as showing someone a sample script and asking them for their impressions of it. Sometimes we do what's called a table read, where, you know, if you and I are sitting there, I'll pretend to be the chatbot, you pretend to be the user, and we'll kind of mimic the conversation just like through role-playing, basically. There are ways to do slightly higher fidelity testing through what's called Wizard of Oz testing, where a common setup would be for a chatbot, if you're the user, I will basically be the chatbot's brain. And if we're doing, like I said, a chatbot, you would be typing to the chatbot thinking it was a real chatbot, and I would be actually operating it and serving up the prompts. So it's basically like a way to prototype before you write any code. And then, of course, when you know enough to start actually involving developers, we do lots of uh, classic usability testing on the product itself, whether it's voice or chat. So throughout the process, we do a lot of iteration and a lot of early stage testing. When describing the pillars of a conversational UX, you mentioned personality. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about that part. This is a very complicated part. There's a lot that goes into designing the personality. So usually most processes start by having a group identify kind of the goals. We call them interaction goals, but it's like, what's the mission? What's the interaction trying to accomplish? So for example, if you are making a voice bot for a fast food drive through ordering or like a, a food ordering kiosk, your interaction goals are going to be efficiency and accuracy versus if you are building a chat bot that's supposed to help with mental health support, then efficiency is actually not one of your, your interaction goals. You would be more thinking about support, nurturing, being patient, things like that. So identifying those first is part one. And then you have to figure out what personality is going to help support and fit with those interaction goals. So from there, you can figure out, okay, if we want this person to be friendly and efficient, how does the voice sound? What are some samples of word choice that we need to be using? And then once you've identified the personality that serves the interaction and aligns with the brand, a lot of times we'll do testing on the personality itself. So we might play audio clips to testers or show them sample screens from a chatbot and ask them what personality they perceive to make sure that what we're writing and how the voice bot is speaking actually conveys what we're trying to make it convey. There is this question. We have to answer the same question with uh, email marketing when there is 
obviously automated communication that we want to look personable. So pretending that you're a person is no good way. Everybody still knows it's automation. Mm -hmm. But so do you pretend to be, you know, a random Laura or do you announce, you know, I'm Pluto the bot from the start and just not pretend to be human ever? Generally, the ethical guidelines are to always reveal that it is a bot. Mm -hmm. You should never pretend that it's a person. And in part, it's because people, once they know it's a bot, kind of change their expectations and they tend to expect less versus if you think it's a person, if it has a strange error or it misunderstands something you said, that's extra frustrating because you're sort of applying human to human expectations to it. So definitely the recommendation that like most companies make is to always reveal right away that it's a bot. So probably it won't have a human avatar to it. It probably will have some sort of illustration or like bubble that it replaces the human face. Yes, totally. A lot of times those avatars will either be a logo, like for example, Bank of America, their chatbot Erica just has a logo. Siri is just a, you know, that sort of abstracted image. Some companies do use like a little cartoony human face. One that I like a lot that looks like a face, but not a human face is Planned Parenthood's chatbot called Roo, R-O-O. It has a very cute little face, but it very much, at the same time, it's clear you're not talking to a person. It's interesting though, that they still have names. So how do you pick that? So picking names, a lot of these topics, like there's so much debate and interesting conversations at conferences and on Medium about different approaches to these things. So I'm the sort of person who thinks you don't necessarily need a name. And if you do, the name can help communicate the fact that you're not talking to a person. So for example, Dropbox has a chatbot called Dropbot, or at one time, at least it was called Dropbot. And I, I think that's a great name because it reflects the brand. And it also in the name communicates, this isn't a person, this is an automated system. So I tend to want to avoid human names like Amtrak's bot is named Julie. I don't know why. I don't <laughs> I don't think she needs a name. You know, I tend to think you either don't need one or you can choose something that that is less human. A side question on design of those actual text interfaces. Well, understand they're typically plugged into your normal support system, support chat or something. Or do you ever even have, you know, projects that involve designing the, the box itself? Or is it typical to just have one of those existing tools? I don't know, Intercom, Drift, whoever the conversational UIs seem to look these days. Mm -hmm. I think most companies are going with kind of like a pre-built solution where maybe they can, you know, especially if it's a chat window that's going in a website, there are a lot of products that people can kind of add to their technology architecture where they don't have to design the actual UI. They can just customize some things in the back end. A lot of times companies, especially if it's a service chatbot, go with a pre-built solution. But I think potentially, especially if you're building an app or have something that's really custom, it can be great to make sure that the UI also does communication work and supports the brand and supports the personality. So it's definitely 
something that's important to do usability testing with, the same as the conversation itself. Finally, the conversation itself. So you mentioned it's typical to start with the intents and the training data, I think, sample training data, or do you start with the prompts, which way, chicken or the egg? It is very much, that's great. It's very much a chicken and egg scenario, particularly with like something like a customer support interaction. Conversation designers will start by looking at hundreds of transcripts or even thousands of transcripts. They will listen to human agents and kind of get a sense of how those people are talking and what customers are asking about. So generally you would use those transcripts to help you figure out what intents you might need to handle and how specific those intents need to be. If your interaction is more something like Alexa or Google Assistant, a lot of times those designers will start with sample scripts, sort of like, what's what are we aiming for? How do we want this conversation to go? And then, you know, you need both pieces of the equation. So yeah, it, it depends on the use case a little bit, but I... In my mind, they are. I often work on them at the same time. When I look at a list of, I'm creating a sense of like all the intents that we need. I'm already thinking about possible prompts and variations in those prompts. So um, they're very much interconnected. So you create a smaller sample version of the future dialogue and get that approved with the stakeholders. Is that the smallest prototype that you're yes. working with? Yes, that's a great way to put it. So yeah, a sample script is just like on a page or you can mock it up with audio or on a nice looking slide or something sort of when a customer asks something like this, how is the conversation going to go? So that definitely is a useful, like you said, something to take to stakeholders and also a benchmark for the team. Like, okay, whatever we build needs to go like this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then what do you do to enrich it and to actually make it a working system? This like... To be honest, conversational UX just scares me entirely <laughs> as a visual designer because you don't see the options of the user. It's really a black box thing. And how do you make it work? Yeah, you absolutely hit on another one of the big challenges, which is users don't have the same, especially if it's a voice interaction, they don't have the same guidance that you get from something visual. So when you're moving from sample scripting to prototyping, you know, some of the early stage testing, you know, the going recommendations are to like do usability testing, try a bunch of different approaches. And we try to do like as much prototyping and testing as we can before people start writing code. And a lot of times we'll involve developers with the prototyping and the usability testing so that they see how testers are interacting and so that they're kind of learning more about the interaction side. And then in our book, we have a chapter about like at a certain point, the developers need to start development and how do you, you know, support them and make sure that they're building the chatbot behavior that's intended while kind of staying out of the way. And we give a lot of tips in our book about conversations that you can have that are helpful, tips on working with developers. And one of those tips is like making sure that asking them directly if your documentation is useful to them and figuring out um, the best delivery for documenting some of these kind of complicated interactions. 
And then the last thing I'll say is once the bot can do some stuff, like once we have an actual product to test, we like to do early stage usability testing. A lot of times we use more guidance, like we give pretty specific constraints to the testers, but we do like to actually test that product early too. You mentioned development, but so far, tell me how one voice UX project is different from another, because it seems that the parsing process is similar from one bot to another. It's it's something on the coming in that is getting parsed with existing libraries, and then you plug in some sort of linguistic data into it. Why do developers play an important role there, but not a technical role, if that I'm I'm not here to humiliate the developers, but <laughs> curious why they how can they affect the strategy of the bot? What a great question. I've never been asked this question. So you're totally right that like developers are using existing tools. So they're not building the NLU algorithm from scratch. But what they do have to do is set up technical architecture. Like if they're using one product to take in the voice and another product to parse and another product to serve up the right prompt. Sometimes there's visual elements or links that we serve or outgoing text messages that get sent. So there's a lot of kind of architecture for them to set up. And they have to set up context. So what I mean by context is a designer might make it so that the first time a user talks with a chatbot, it gives them like an onboarding experience. So it's like a totally different conversation. And then the next time the user uses the chatbot, they get a returning user conversation that's more efficient. So a developer would be setting up the systems to respond to like this, like track the session data, what number session it is, and then do those different conversational flows. And they also have a lot of work to do around things like error handling. So often a designer will say, okay, if this error happens, this is what should be said. If this type of thing happens, this is what should be said. If they get an error three times in a row, this other thing should happen. Designers will kind of plan out those conditions and then developers have to code all that stuff. So they they do have a lot to do. And the more stuff a designer plans for the bot, the more the developer has to do. <laughs> I have a question about, I would call this persistency, because many human people, users, come to the bot with the idea to get to the human as fast as possible. So their errors probably prompt, probably request something like, just take me to the agent and things like that. How many times does the bot try to interact before actually passing this over to a support agent, if that ever happens? Are there situations when that never happens, which should be probably said or... Or not? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, my personal opinion varies from the opinion of some businesses I've worked with. So I worked <laughs> with businesses who really want it to be very difficult to talk to a person, which I find harmful. A lot of companies will set up, okay, well, if these certain types of things happen, we know the chatbot can't handle it. So we're going to automatically send it to a person. That's a really good approach. One example of that is if you are trying to do something complicated, like combine two bank accounts or close a savings account and put the money into a checking account, something like that. Generally, a person probably needs to to handle that because there might be special security requirements or things like that. So there might be cases where those are automatically sent to a person. I know 
lots of people will try to say, they'll say, give me a person or representative or escalate. Uh, Users will try that stuff. I think you should, if somebody requests to talk to a person, you should get them to a person. Right now, very few chatbots are as good as people are at certain things. So I think it's best to think of a chatbot as a facilitator. And there's a lot that it can help with, but if it can't, get it to someone who can right away. And you see that structure, like in drive-through ordering, a lot of companies are making voice bots to handle orders and they view the chatbot as sort of part of the team with the people. So it's not bad if a person needs to take over. It's just sort of one of the options of how the order can be taken. So I think that's a good mindset. One of my favorite questions is what kind of assets, materials do you use to reflect those conversations? And I think with previous speakers, we've arrived at plenty of spreadsheets. And like, I always want to hear some exciting software, but uh, the reality is that it's stored in a more boring text format. How do you do that uh, from your experience? This is a great question. And my answer is a lot of the time I do use spreadsheets and most conversation designers I know also use spreadsheets. There are tools that are getting better, but what's tricky is you both need kind of sophisticated content management for things like the prompts and the training data. And those two things change all the time. So uh, they're constantly updated. And so a lot of times spreadsheets seem to be the easiest way to say like, hey, I updated the spreadsheet. Will you pull it and put it in JSON form and update the system with it? That's usually the most efficient way. But there are tools that help with prototyping and are starting to get a little better at the content management piece. Um, I use VoiceFlow. And then there are BotMock and Bot Society. Those are like the top three that conversation designers are using today. They all help you prototype without having to necessarily build code. But in terms of documentation in general, in our book, we position documentation as something that has to be useful or else it has no reason to exist. And you need to figure out what you're trying to accomplish with the documentation. Is this for me? as the designer to help me think through scenarios. I use flow diagrams for that. Is this to communicate to developers the system? I use flow diagrams for that, but also charts, also conversations, also requirements documentation. And then sometimes we're trying to show stakeholders what we intend to build or what's being built and get their approval. So throughout the process, There's certain documentation types that we make, you know, flow diagrams for us, simplified flow diagrams for stakeholders, spreadsheets for us, simplified spreadsheets for, you know, people. Sometimes we use storyboards. Sometimes we don't make any permanent documentation. We just do some whiteboarding and send out an email with changes we want to make to the interaction. So it really depends on the size of the team for sure. And then also where you are in the process. And it is difficult. Every form of documentation has an upside and a downside. So I usually just ask, especially when I'm making documentation for developers, because it can get pretty complicated. I usually just ask them, I say like, hey, this is the kind of documentation I typically produce. Is this useful? Which part of it's useful? What could I do to make it more 
easy for you to use. And that's usually the best way to actually make documentation that people use. Is there any project that's put up online with the full set of uh, deliverables on such a project? Possibly. I don't know of one right away. A lot of people don't show their documentation because sometimes it's proprietary. Like sometimes companies have internal tools or processes and they don't want other people to know. I know a lot of conversation designers that don't want to show their documentation because they feel like it's not very good. Or like huh. it's oversimple. <laughs> and I know like I in a like kind of a, a community meetup thing, I just showed a bunch of people my documentation from a project I was working on. And there was like a ton of debate about it. So definitely this will be an ongoing thing that UX people and conversation designers and developers continue to figure out. It's probably a bit like disclosing code or something because it can be definitely, definitely reused and it's a ton of work. Mm-hmm. So you might feel that you own it and you don't want another person, a junior designer, just grab it for another project as a boilerplate, right? Yeah. I mean, within a company, companies do try to like make reusable pieces, but like, yeah, I definitely, a lot of it is proprietary and kind of shows some secret sauce. And so I think that's part of the privacy part too. Yeah. It is an interesting, an interesting world of this documentation question. With our pre-recording chat, we talked about different problems that arise in conversational UX projects, and you've kind of touched on those a little bit. For example, projects running out of scope, not running out of scope, but just taking months and months of work where you would think it can be done much faster. What other problems do arise? I mean, <laughs> there's so there's so <laughs> many. And a big problem... Something we try to address in our book is a lot of times companies misunderstand how specific requests can be. So like a common thing is to to go, you know, for somebody like business analyst or product manager or another stakeholder at a higher level to go, okay, well, we want the chatbot to be able to handle questions about billing. So we need a billing intent and one response for that intent. So that how long does that take? Like not very long, right? But actually, billing is just a topic and there could be like potentially dozens or hundreds of different specific billing questions like, when is my bill due? How much is my bill for? Can I pay my bill late? Can I cancel a bill payment? And all of those might potentially be different intents. So um, one of the big pitfalls is not understanding the nuance of how many specific things a chatbot needs to speak about. And that can in part be predicted to a certain degree by a conversation designer doing good user research, but it's also something you can't fully understand without testing. So companies really undercut both the research piece and the importance of testing to get the full scope of of that kind of variation. When you work on on a project, do you try to predict all sets of synonyms? I don't know, we will bill you, charge you, all kinds of things? Or is there a library that helps you with it? Like with SEO, for example, many SEO specialists know that by now Google is pretty good at uh, putting together different variations. So you don't have to optimize for every potential keyword combination, only for for the one you, you mean. But how about your field? First of all, you know, Reason tells us we can't predict every single way somebody will will ask for something. And 
companies are starting to build specific libraries so you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. So you don't have to necessarily produce your own training data. But often those libraries I find lacking and underdeveloped themselves. So there's always room, and especially, you know, if you're these libraries, and there's all kinds of research on this, training data in general for conversational interfaces tends to skew towards standard American English and ignore the many like American dialects of English that exist around the country. And they also skew towards like whiteness, like white sounding names, white sounding accents, things like that. So a lot of those libraries have those same problems. And so if you're building something for a specific region, or you know a lot of people in your target population speak English as a second language, you're going to have to do your own customization. Whenever we talk about text and language, there is often, you know, a writer and an editor present in the process. And I think there is horrible lack of uh, collaborative editing tools, even if we talk about articles, you know, plain old Google Docs, unfortunately, is uh, unrivaled almost when it comes to suggested edits and other stuff. But when it comes to editing such volume of structured data as you're working with, is there ever an editor's pass or is it mostly just one person's job? Great question. On a small team, it's usually one person's job. In a larger organization, you might have you know, a bunch of people looking at the text. You might have the conversation designer who's kind of looking out for functionality and and clarity and things like that. And then you might have somebody on the branding or marketing team kind of editing to make sure that it matches the brand guidelines. And then, of course, in some ways, usability testing gives you edits because you see certain places where some you know, oh, this took too long to say, and people started to lose the thread of what they couldn't follow what it was saying, or, you know, this wasn't clear. And a bunch of people answered this question wrong or gave an answer that wasn't supported. So usually there are often at least two people in a larger team and usability testing, I think really helps identify prompts or pieces of prompts that aren't effective and need to be corrected and improved. Rebecca, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom today. I think we do need to wrap up, but you've given us great insight into the industry. If some of our listeners want to get their foot in the door and you know get some of their first projects, what's the best way to get up to speed in, in the industry? Well, of course, I'm biased, but I do think our book is great for beginners. I'm getting a lot of... Honestly, this has been the the best thing ever. A lot of people have just messaged me on LinkedIn or Twitter and said, hey, I'm new to conversation design. I read your book. It's so helpful. And like, there's no better support that we could receive than hearing that it's actually been helpful to people. So that's been great. So our book is um, definitely something to check out. There are lots of webinars and courses. There's an organization called Women in Voice. They're definitely worth a follow on Twitter or LinkedIn. They do a lot of programming, career accelerators, things like that. Following some of these tools like VoiceFlow, BotMock, and Bot Society on social media, they also do a lot of webinars. And there are lots of experts in the field. And two that I'll call out are uh, Lisa Foxen and Kathy Pearl. And there's so many 
amazing conversation design people out there. But those are two folks who are worth a follow because they're always speaking, always sharing great resources. So basically just getting involved in the community, you'll start to see all kinds of people to talk to. And it's a really welcoming community. There's also courses and there's a, a ton of them. So there's definitely not a lack of conversation design resources out there. That's great to hear. Tell us where can people find your own writing beyond the book and where can they find you online? The best place to find me online is on Twitter. And my handle is R Evanho. So the letter R in my last name. You can also follow my co-author Diana Dibel. Her handle is Diana Does This. No punctuation, just Diana Does This, all, all one word. And yeah, th that's the best place to track us down. For our book, you can go to rosenfeldmedia.com and find our book and a ton of other amazing books, especially if you're a UX person. You can also get our book on Amazon, but you might check out, you know, always nice to get from us directly from the source if you want to go directly to Rosenfeld Media. Amazing. Thanks so much once again and hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you so much for all these great questions. This was really fun. <laughs>